All right, for our challenge this morning, I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, if you like taking notes on a handout, there is one in the bulletin. Uh, you can follow along in that way. Um, I'll be just taking about 20 minutes or so this morning and working through the next text of Scripture uh, before we celebrate uh, the Lord's table together. I've entitled this challenge, Paul's Final Demands Regarding Human Wisdom. Uh, In chapter 3, at the beginning of the chapter, Paul gives us two reminders about leaders in the church. First, he reminds us that leaders of the church are servants of God who cannot produce fruit left to themselves. All of the growth is of God. And and then, uh, after that, uh, in the very next section for verses 10 through 17, last week, we we were reminded of the fact that all leaders of the church will be held accountable by God. Some will experience reward for their faithfulness. I think that's represented by the gold, silver, and precious stones of the text. Others will suffer loss, perhaps reflected in the wood, hay, and stubble of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And so the Corinthians should really uh, consider uh, how much they're boasting in men because we don't even really know yet at this point how men will do at that judgment. And so he gives those reminders, but then he gives these final demands at the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4. As a matter of fact, there are two at the end of chapter 3, from verses 18 through 23, and there are two at the beginning of chapter 4. I will cover those this evening uh, if you come back. Uh, The first two demands or commands are found very easily in your text. Let me show them to you. Uh, In verse 18, chapter 3, verse 18, Paul says, Let no one deceive himself, period. That's a command. That's a demand that he gives. And then if you look down in verse 21, it's very easy to lose track of uh, how Paul separates the text. In verse 21, at the start of the second half of this text, he lists another command. So, let no one boast in men. You see that? Let no one deceive himself. Let no one boast in men. Paul gives these two final demands. When a creditor issues his final demands in a letter, you know that payment of your debt is serious, right? I don't speak from personal experience here, but I've heard uh, that that's the case. If you do not meet the demands of the creditor, then corrective, punitive methods or measures will be taken. That's like what Paul is doing about the Corinthian church embracing and using human wisdom in the assembly. For he lays out these four final commands before he says, if those don't work, I'm going to come and I'll bring my rod with you. The end of chapter 4. He's got other ways of dealing with this, but he is going to give them these commands. So this morning I want to look at these two demands at the grand conclusion of this text. First, Paul says in verses 18 through 20, Don't deceive yourself. Don't deceive yourself, Corinthians. God will uncover worldly wisdom. Look at verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of the world is folly with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, 
The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Paul's first command is, let no one deceive himself. It's the only time the the verb deceived is used in the New Testament in this way. It is sometimes used of Satan deceiving believers. At other times in the New Testament, it's used of false teachers deceiving believers. This is the only time in the text that I could find where Paul talks about believers deceiving themselves. We cannot deceive ourselves or trick ourselves. And Paul wants the Corinthians to know that incorporating worldly wisdom into the church will be discovered by God. Don't fool yourself, Corinthians. It will be uncovered. The command is very simple at the beginning there. Let no one deceive himself. But then after that command, Paul answers two different questions in the text. First, he answers the question, who needs to obey this command? Let no one deceive himself. Who needs to obey that? And his answer is found in the middle to end of verse 18. If anyone among you thinks that he's wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. So Paul's answer is, anyone among the Corinthian assembly, if any of you, if if some among you Corinthians think that you might be wise in this age, you need to heed the command. And so for us to, to really understand what Paul is saying here, you, we have to look at that little phrase, wise in this age. That to me is a perplexing statement. What does Paul mean when he says that it's possible that some of the Corinthians would be wise in this age? I think it's an important phrase, but it's one that demands some investigation. First of all, the word age that is used here, I believe, could also be translated era. And so Paul is describing the era or the age in which believers live. He uh, actually has some interesting things to say about this in the Pauline epistles. I did a word study of age. I just looked for it anywhere in Paul's epistles. And it comes, when it comes up, it's very interesting. So for instance, in Galatians 1 and verse 14, Paul describes the present age as, you remember this? The present what age? The present age evil age. That's Paul's perspective of the era in which the Corinthians were existing. It is an evil age. I think of Romans 12 and verse 1, and many of us have that verse memorized, where Paul challenges the believers not to be conformed to this world. Do you know that the word for world is the same word that's used for age here? Don't be conformed to this age or this era as New Testament believers. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, Paul has something to say about this age, and he says that there is a God of this present evil age, and the God of this present evil age is Satan himself. Satan is the God of this age. In other words, men and women, lost people who make up this present age are not neutral. The people of our age, as Ephesians 2 says, are doomed following the course of this world. 
So when Paul warns the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3, 18, in the middle of that verse, if you think that you are wise in this age, then you need to do something about it. I think that this is a very strong warning for us as New Testament believers. Another way of saying that would be something like this. If you have street smarts, if, if you think you are aware of the values of our culture, then you must become foolish when it comes to worldly wisdom. In other words, it's very possible for New Testament believers in Jesus Christ to be too worldly wise. Our teens are away at a retreat. We should be praying for our teenagers because they're right in the thick of it, many of them. They're living in an age that's evil, right? It's evil for all of us. And there's pressures placed upon them to conform or to take some of uh, the, the values of the culture and to incorporate them into our church. Now, I don't know that I'm going to do a great job preaching through this text as much as uh, what it has meant for me this week. I mean, this is a strong warning. And Paul says, if you begin to think that you are wise in this age, you better do something about it. It's a strong warning, and it's a strong reminder But what does he mean when he says you should become foolish concerning worldly wisdom? I I think becoming foolish means that we renounce earthly wisdom. Means that we determine to be simple concerning the evil of this age. Remember that text, be simple concerning evil. Be simple concerning the evil of this age. That means I do not need to know the corrupt lyrics of every twisted song that mankind is producing. It's something that I don't even care about. So it's like, have you heard the lyrics of this song and how bad it, I don't even want to know, right? It means I don't need to know all of the latest gossip about Hollywood relationships and affairs. I, I don't even care. I want to know who some of these people are, other than perhaps to pray for them means I don't even need to stay aware of what marketing experts tell me are current or best methods to build the church. I don't care what marketing gurus say about how to build the church, especially if they're unregenerate. They're not followers of Jesus Christ. So who needs this command? Do not deceive yourselves. Anyone among us who thinks he might be wise in this age, But then second, Paul answers the question in verses 19 and 20, why should believers obey this command? So the blank in your notes is why. Why should believers obey this command? Verse 19, he says, for the wisdom of the world is foolishness with God. That's your simple answer. This is Paul's one reason why you need to obey the command. Because worldly wisdom, wisdom of this age is foolishness to God. And then he grounds it in Scripture. For it is written, and he he quotes from two different texts of the Old Testament, which ironically are found in the wisdom literature. There's one in Job and one in Psalms. So I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles back to Job for a moment. Go back to Job 5. Job 5 and verse 13. So Paul says, For the wisdom of the world is folly with God, for it is written. Let me prove it to you, Corinthians. Job 5, 13. 
He catches the wise in their own craftiness. Okay, and I want to uh, just momentarily reflect upon this passage with you. First, we need to know that God had decided to allow Satan to test Job. You remember this in the Old Testament? And then we learn in Job chapter 1 that it was for no particular sin of Job. It wasn't anything that he did that really demanded this. But God decided to allow Satan to test him. And it was a grueling test for Job, right? It was a grueling test for him because he lost his wealth, his property, his fields, and perhaps most difficultly, he lost his family. So as you're reading through the book of Job, you get to Job chapter 3, and you see that Job breaks through his despair. At the end of chapter 2, Job is sitting, and he can't even talk. He's surrounded by three friends, and yet he won't say anything for quite a long time. But then in Job 3, he pours his heart out to these friends and out to God. And Job asks some very significant questions. He asks, like, why in the world am I continuing to exist? And why did God ever allow me to be born? And that leads to Job 4 through 31, where in those chapters, those three friends who are sitting there listening to him respond by getting involved, and and they try to help him in their despair. I love Job 4 through 31 because it's set up as a series, a cycle of three different exchanges between Job and his counselors or or his friends. Okay, and so you just keep going through this, and and Job is uh, talking with them. But one of the uh, things that you you learn as you study here is that the, the guidance in these three cycles comes from people who have a theological problem. Their foundation was off because they believed that all human suffering was always the result of human sinfulness. You get that? I mean, this is important for the counselors. They see Job suffering, and from the very beginning, they assume he's involved in hidden sin. And so as we start reading through their counsel, it comes first by the man by the name of Eliphaz. Eliphaz in Job chapter 5. Look in your Bible at verse 6. Verse 6 says, For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground, but man is born to trouble and the sparks fly upward. As for me, this is Eliphaz counseling Job, I would seek God. And to God would I commit my cause. Why, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number? He gives rain on the earth and sends water on the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. Quotation, right here. He catches the wise in their own craftiness. And the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. Job 5, 6 and 7, Eliphaz begins to speak up here. He argues that people's trouble does not come out of the dust or out of the ground. Another way of saying that is people's trouble, don't, it doesn't come out of thin air. There's always a cause for it. And the cause that Eliphaz indicates, he believes, is in Job's life. And so his assessment of Job is this. You've got a place in your notes to jot down a few thoughts here. His assessment of Job is this. He sees Job as being irritated. You see that in verse 2? Or vexed in my ESV translation. Job, you're irritated about what's going on. Some of us would say, yeah, how could we not? 
be irritated. But you're irritated. You're jealous, verse 2. He says that there as well. The end part of verse 2, you are jealous of other people's success and how God is helping them. And then in verses 6 and 7, I think he's saying, Job, you are involved in hidden sin. This isn't coming out of nowhere. Not out of thin air. You're doing something that you shouldn't. That's his evaluation of Job. Eliphaz, Eliphaz has misread the situation. Right? Ever had a counselor like this? <laughs> you almost you appreciate their good heart, but you almost wish they would never say anything. Like, this, how's that even helpful? You think you got all the answers? You don't even know what I've been through. Eliphaz has misdiagnosed Job. But then look at his assessment of God in this text. His assessment of God is better. He suggests four things to describe God here. And you've got this place in your notes too. God does great things, verse 9. He provides for others, verse 10. He helps the lowly, verse 11. Most importantly, the text that he talks about here, and God will capture the crafty. He will capture the crafty, you know, those who use human wisdom. So it is this last statement that Paul quotes, God catches, like a hunter catches an animal, he catches the wise in their own scheming. And although Eliphaz had not properly diagnosed the situation with Job, he was still correct when it came to God. He says, Job, if I were you, I would go back to God. I would go to God. He can help you. And so that's why Paul quotes him. The Corinthian church, it might be using or incorporating worldly wisdom and putting it into the assembly, embracing wisdom of this age. Paul says, God will catch the crafty in their own craftiness from Eliphaz. There's another text that he uses here, and this will be the only point we make this morning. But the second quote is taken from Psalm 94 and verse 11. I'd encourage you to turn there uh, right before we go to the Lord's table. Psalm 94 and verse 11. For Paul gives two scriptural grounds. This combined quotation. The scripture proves his point. Don't deceive yourself. God's going to catch you. Job taught us that. But so does Psalm 94, verse 11. Psalm 94 is a psalm about the apparent prosperity of wicked people on this planet. They seem to be getting away with things. So the psalmist gives us a section in verses 8 through 15 where he calls for people who are being influenced by the culture. He actually describes these people as brutish and ignorant people to take notice of something. In other words, he wants the ordinary people of the community that he's addressing to take notice of the fact that they're being influenced by the important people of the culture. These ignorant people do not believe that God will hold them accountable. They think that God is futile or powerless. He won't hear. God doesn't see. I mean, he doesn't really see what goes on. But in verse 11, the psalmist pulls the great reversal, I call it. They think 
God is futile and powerless. And the psalmist says, God actually knows your thoughts and your schemes are powerless. Look, look with me at Psalm 94, verse 8. Understand, O dullest of the people, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, quotation, right here, here it is. The Lord knows the thoughts of a man, that they are but a breath. Actually, God knows that they are powerless. Their plans, their thinking is empty. They have all of these elaborate plots and schemes, but their thoughts are a puff of smoke or a mere breath. I think Paul uses Psalm and Job, Psalms and, and Job's for just about the same reason. And that is to show us that the thoughts of the wise are fruitless and without result, even when it is not immediately apparent. So the Corinthian believers must reject the wisdom that comes from this present evil age, even if it appears to be successful. This morning, in just a moment, we're going to be turning our attention to wisdom that proceeds from the Father, the Lord's table. It's very easy, it's so easy to be influenced by the wisdom of this age. To let it in, to embrace it, to use it in our assembly and in our lives. But may we be known for rejecting that wisdom and embracing the wisdom of the cross, foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. It is the wisdom and the power of God. I invite you to just take a moment of quiet reflection as we transition to the table now. And as you do that, I pray that you will boast in Jesus Christ, his actions, his faithfulness, his obedience, his surrender, his submission to the Father. But you boast in that and then also abandon worldly wisdom. Dear Father, as we come before you in celebration of the Lord's table today, I pray that you would reveal to us where we have embraced the wisdom of this age. Lord, if there are some within the assembly who have been tempted to walk away from the wisdom of the cross, the wisdom found in the cross of Jesus Christ, I pray that you would undergird that young man or young woman or older person with faith to believe the promises of your holy word. Uh, we're thankful for the opportunity to meet and to gather around the Lord's table, and we rejoice in its meaning to us as believers today. In Jesus' name, amen.